It's a disgrace what's happening in our country. But other than that, I wish everybody a very Merry Christmas. Thank you very much. Hello and welcome. The federal government might be shut down over the holidays, but the Political Notebook podcast is still fully operational. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. I'm Robert Robb, an editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. And believe it or not, it is the 50th episode of the Political Notebook podcast. And we're going to return to a topic that we talked about in one of our early podcasts uh, around this time last year, criminal justice reform, when we have our criminal justice expert, defense attorney, senior. and brother, <laughs> senior defense, senior criminal justice reform expert, John Robb. Welcome Thank you. Thank to the you. podcast. Good to be here. And uh, so some news since we last talked about criminal justice reform uh, just recently, there's been a federal bill passed, uh, the First Step Act. So we're going to talk about that a little bit and then also what else might work uh, at the state level in terms of uh, criminal justice reform. So despite the bitter bitter partisanship in Washington, D.C., on pretty much everything, including the shutdown, they did manage to pass this First Step Act, uh, which does a few things relating to criminal justice reform. It increases uh, the amount of time that inmates can can reduce uh, off of their sentences for good behavior. Uh, It increases some discretion for judges in in sentencing for, for certain types of crimes. Uh, it reduces uh, certain mandatory minimums for uh, for certain drug offenses, and it uh, it also I think retroactively applies uh, the fair sentencing uh, law for for the disparities between crack and and, and powder cocaine, which will immediately uh, allow some inmates to to go free for that. Um, so a lot of discussion this lately, John. Uh, is this a big deal or a small deal, and and how might this law impact ordinary? procedures in courtrooms in America? Well, I definitely think it's a good step. I mean, it does two things, which I think are uh, very are, are beneficial reforms for the uh, justice system. One is sort of to reduce the, um, the length of prison sentences that people get um, and to um, potentially reduce the number of people um, who are put into, into prison. Um, and the other thing that doesn't get talked about as often, which I think is, is very important as well, is it, is it, turn, is it helps make prison into something else, um, in, into to something that actually will increase a person's ability to um, be able to become a productive member of um, our communities when they leave. Um, and, and I think that ultimately what uh, criminal justice reform across the country will look like is is a combination of, of, of both of those things, um, both to dramatically reduce the number of people that go to prison, um, dr- dramatically reduce the sentences for most people who, who, who do go, um, and to fundamentally change what prison is, um, not, not a, a punishment that's, that's set up to be this harsh place that people don't want to be. Um, but rather to be a, a place where they can um, develop skills and not be as isolated from their communities and their families. Um, and I, I have not been following, I'll admit, I have not been following the, the uh, recent bill as uh, closely as I otherwise would have, because um, I, I, I've been kind of 
a little jaded almost. And when I when I was preparing to, for this podcast and sort of going back and looking at the uh, stats, I sort of realized why. But I, I will put in the uh, criminal justice, uh, the federal criminal justice reform that just passed into some context. Um, the uh, Department of Justice and the Bureau of uh, Justice um, statistics sort of keeps um, statistics on people that are in prisons and in, in, in jails and otherwise under the supervision of the um, justice system. Um, and in 2016, um, they um, have this table of uh, people that are um, in the, the table I'm looking at, they've called total correctional population. And correctional population would be um, both the people that are actually in physical custody of uh, jails or, or prisons um, or under some sort of um, supervision, and parole, is it the state, probation. Is that so state the, and federal level? The, the United States total in both state and federal um, that are part of the total correctional population in 2016 was um, 6,582,100 people. Um, the federal total was 320,000. Um, so of the over six and a half million people under the, sort of the, the total auspices of the criminal justice system, the federal system had a very, very small percentage of that. Um, and it, it just sort of puts into perspective what, what the, the federal government can actually do is sort of a drop in the bucket compared to what, what the total impact of the criminal justice system is in, in the United States, which is almost exclusively um, state and local systems. So the politics of this uh, were interesting. So much, so much gridlock. Uh, we have a shutdown right now over over border wall funding. The Democrats just took control of the of the House and are are uh, you know creating this oppositional stance uh, to Trump. But in the midst of all this, uh, Dad, we we passed this this bill that even though it might not be a total reform, it's called first step. But it is kind of it was kind of remarkable to see all these different people in the same room celebrating. Uh, the passage of, of a law. So how did this happen politically, and why did it happen right now? Uh, and it was enacted by a very large um, bipartisan vote. Um, there has uh, been a increased interest and in activity uh, around sort of a left-right coalition. Uh, the left is pretty uniformly in favor of criminal justice reform. The right historically has been more of a let's be tough on crime um, movement. Uh, but there has developed within the right a um, support for significant criminal justice reform motivated by a belief that it's absorbing too many resources uh, there is a libertarian strain among conservatives um, about drug laws, uh, and incarceration and drug use is uh, closely uh, related. And uh, a growing interest in the right for um, second, being a second chance society, to say that people who have served their time, uh, we ought to try to do something to give them the skills to live their life differently, um, outside of prison, and we ought to restore their rights, and we shouldn't hold it against them uh, in our hiring. Uh, we should reduce the number of examples of where felony convic convictions are a barrier to occupational licensing. 
Arizona's delegation reflected this um, very well. Um, there's still a split in the right. Uh, all of Arizona's Republican delegation voted against the farm bill. The farm bill also passed with an overwhelming bipartisan support, but among those who are opposed were every Republican member from Arizona in Congress. But on the First Step Act, um, there was a split. Uh, at the Senate level, Jeff Flake voted for it. John Kyle voted against it. Uh, in the House, uh, Andy Biggs and Paul Gosar voted against it. Uh, David Schweikert, uh, Debbie Lesko, uh, and Martha McSally voted for it. Um, I really think politically, uh, and this will be something that um, the two of you may uh, <laughs> react negatively to, but I think the thing that really changed the politics was President Trump endorsing it uh, and endorsing it strongly. I think that sort of opened the door uh, and created pressure, particularly in the Senate, uh, for Mitch McConnell, who was holding it up, uh, to bring it to the floor. But you're also seeing the same coalition at work uh, for to try to achieve criminal justice reform at the state level. And you've seen it in some very conservative states like Texas and uh, Utah. Uh, and there will be a renewed uh, effort with a little bit more energy behind it um, here in Arizona, this legislative session. Yeah, one of the one of the biggest stories related to that, I think, was what happened in Florida, which was that was a referendum, right? Yes. Uh, citizen referendum that they voted to restore voting rights to uh, formerly convicted felons, which uh, opened up voting rights again for over a, over a million people. Um, <clears throat> so I'm wondering, John, you talked about. It representing, even though it's not a huge step, it's a first step, but it's representing perhaps a fundamental change of what prison is, and maybe there's some changing, I, I guess there's sort of like competing narratives on the purpose of, of prison and, and what it relates to criminal justice. On one, on one hand, you have this idea of tough on crime and, and public safety, and historically, tough prison sentences and locking people up and throwing away the key was hand-in-hand hand with this idea of public safety and, and tough on crime. On the other hand, there's a growing sense that we're locking too many people up, and, and it's not fair, and, and we should see that. So do you think, John, that we're seeing a societal shift uh, in the way we look at criminal justice and that, that dynamic between public safety and incarceration? Are, are people maybe breaking that mental connection between harsh sentencing and public safety? I mean, I think they probably are. Um, I, I, I do note that the um, in, uh, incarceration rate of the United States, while still at, at, at historical highs in, um, in just internationally absurd numbers, um, has been going down on average since um, 2008. Um, and even in, in Arizona, which is one of the highest in, in uh, incarceration, incarceration rates in the country, has been leveling off. It's still been going up, but it's been the the growth rate doesn't appear to have have maintained since about 2008. So I mean, something's happening. Um, I, I don't quite know what it is. I think a, 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 I think I think a lot of it, frankly, ought to be put into um, the appropriate context. Um, 
which is that the United the incarceration rate in the United States is a um, internationally absurd rate. I mean, uh, if if you look at our in in um, incarceration rate compared to the rest of the world, it's the highest in the world. Um, the only even comparable countries are um, have murder rates that are double R's, just overwhelmingly a amount of crime, or have overtly authoritarian governments which are um, intending to um, oppress disfavored cultures in their countries. Um, and if you compare the incarceration rates of the United States to um, similar stable, uh, quote-unquote, Western countries, um, it's even more cartoonishly absurd. Um, and even, even when you compare, when, when you put that in the context of the overall crime victimization rates um, between the United States and similarly stable, um, uh, similarly stable countries around the world, it's, it's still cartoonishly absurd. And that was probably caused in part by the crackdown in the 60s and the, and the drug laws here. The, um, the, that's about the, the area, era when the... In, um, Incarceration rates really started to skyrocket Are we, in the 80s. And I think it, the, the public overall is, is very aware of that, that stat. That's those, those kind of stats, mm -hmm. that disparity gets cited uh, widely. Is that pot, are we turning the corner right now, uh, do you guys think, in, in, in recognizing that and taking practical steps over the long haul to, to get rid of that? Or is this just another trend in... in you know, crime rates down right now. If if that if something changes, will we swing back to that, or or do you think we're we're in a generational or or societal shift for the long haul on on being I don't know more humane or or thinking about more second chances or or not going just to the prison system as the solution to to crime. Uh, I think that. Um, there certainly has been a shift in public attitudes, and, and you see it reflected in um, public policy changes. However, the bottom line is, uh, are we sending the wrong people to prison or sending the right people to prison for an excessive amount of time? Um, and so far, uh, in Arizona, I believe that the prosecutors have... Um, the better argument. Uh, we've got about 42,000 um, people in prison in Arizona. Less than 10% uh, of them, their uh, sentencing conviction is drug use. Um, another roughly 10% uh, is um, drug trafficking, but we are a corridor for Mexican drug cartels. One should expect Arizona to have an elevated rate there. We release from prison um, over 18,000 inmates a year. The average length of time that they have spent in prison is only about two years. Um, most people who are convicted of a felony in Arizona don't go to prison. Um, they have other alternatives. I think that the relationship between drugs and crime uh, makes it 
difficult to sort all this out uh, and figure out if we had a public health approach to drugs, what would our crime rate be? What would we want to do with the people who commit those crimes? Um, but I, the, the 1960s and 1970s, before we had the introduction of the incapac incapacitation theory of uh, criminal justice, um, were times of uh, rising crime rates and uh, great public alarm about it. Uh, the uh, function of the overall criminal justice system is to prevent disorder. Uh, and in the United States, we achieved that pretty well. Uh, in uh, the sense of safety in the way that you, uh, in your personal life and in your conduct of your business affairs, uh, is a rare and precious achievement. Uh, and I think there will be a go-slow approach to changing the elements that are thought to contribute to the improvement we've had in that since the 1960s and 1970s. But certainly, the momentum is in that direction. There will be uh, a look at uh, reducing the amount of a sentence someone has to spend in order to be eligible for early release. There will be a look at the range of the maximum minimums. There will be discussion of giving judges additional discretion. There will be an evaluation. The prosecutors say we robustly use uh, alternatives to incarceration. Uh, the criminal justice reform lobby says, well, no, you don't. You actually don't do a very good job of that. And so I think all that's going to be um, a subject um, for fierce debate. So crime rate has been falling. There's probably, that's a complicated question of why that's happening. The uh, tough on crime people, a lot of prosecutors will probably say it's because we have a lot of, lot of sentencing and, 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 and swift punishment. Um, but is there a way, do you think, John, to, like how do we, what's the most effective way, I guess, and the fairest way to reduce prison time overall, but still keep that sense of public safety. There's there's talk of diversion programs and in Arizona. We do have uh, some for drug crimes and non-drug crimes, but there's some controversy over you know how much those cost and who pays those costs. You could change sentencing guidelines or laws, give judges more discretion, allow early release, which is controversial here in Arizona too, because we have the uh, truth in sentencing law that mandates right now 85% uh, serve. So um, what, what do you think is the most effective way to, to keep public safety, to, to, to maintain this balance of public safety and you know, fair, effective ways to reduce prison time overall? I mean, the first point that I would make about the, the perception of public safety and the overall purpose of the criminal justice system and, and its effectiveness and maintaining order and um, public safety is I, I do know uh, from personal experience um, that there is a a much different perspective on the criminal justice system and, and its its effectiveness in in enacting or in in effectuating a safe community safe society amongst um, sort of the the class um, in the United States that that is most subjected to the current justice system um, the the overall, opinion of the criminal justice system and, and sort of in impoverished 
um, and minority communities in the United States, which which bear the brunt of the um, criminal justice system overwhelmingly, um, have a much different perspective on the um, ability of the criminal justice system as it currently exists to to keep them safe um, and to to do so in a seemingly just and fair um, 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 manner. I think one of the and specifically in, in Portland, I think one of the big problems um, with with the way that the criminal justice system has gone about prosecuting and, and enforcing laws against violent crime in a lot of the communities in, in uh, Portland is a a disconnect between the the perception of the population there that has the political control over the um, criminal justice system and the um, populations that live in, in the areas most affected by the crime. Um, there's not a, a perception that, that the criminal justice system is there to, to help people in those communities that are most affected by the crime, and there's distrust. Um, and representing a lot of people um, that, that, that have been charged with, with crimes, um, occasionally being appointed to represent um, witnesses, um, occasionally representing um, victims. I mean, the, the perception is an us versus them mentality of the uh, um, people who are most affected by the justice system. And I think that's a... That that's is a, the perception? Yeah, so it's, that, it's that's, a foreign... That, that, that is not a universal... Uh, point of view. Uh, it is certainly a strong strand. Uh, and I think we're about to engage in an experiment because uh, with all of the um, emphasis on trying to scrutinize the cops for racial profiling, uh, we're beginning to see a withdrawal from enforcing laws in uh, low-income minority neighborhoods. Uh, my guess is that experiment is not going to turn out well. In, in a, a secondary point in that, in the idea, and prosecutors, I know at least in in, in Oregon, are, are are saying this too, is that we are not sending the wrong people to prison. That we are sending sort of violent criminals to prison overwhelmingly, and we don't have an incarceration problem. That's that's sort of the logical argument behind that. Um, I mean, one one point in or the Oregon District Attorneys Association released this astonishing website, and part of part of the the website was setting up myths versus facts. And one of the um, supposed myths was that Oregon does not have an 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 incarceration problem, um, and that's only true if you put Oregon in context of the rest of the country. We do have less than average incarceration rates in in uh, um, Oregon. But as soon as you start going and comparing Oregon to the rest of the world, there's a clear aberration there. It's just cartoonishly absurd in um, incarceration rates compared to other stable democratic um, countries around the um, uh, world. And a big problem is is the is in the the statistics themselves. Um, and and the way I would explain this is to sort of tell tell the uh, story of a um, stolen candy bar. Um, so in Oregon, um, say I go into a Target and I steal a two dollar and fifty cent um, candy bar from the Target, and I, and I walk out. And the loss prevention officers have been watching me on video; they know what I'm doing, and they confront me outside of the store. And they get the stolen candy bar. They call the cops. I get charged with the crime. Um, well, that's a, a theft in the third degree. It's a Class C misdemeanor, um, punishable by up to um, a maximum of 
of uh, 30 days jail. Um, and you can argue about whether it's, it's really just to send somebody to jail for 30 days. Most people don't. Some people do. Um, but it's not one of the things that we're talking about as far as sending people to, 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 um, um, to, to prison. Now say I go into the Target. I steal my candy bar. I go out. The loss prevention officer, as they did in the, the previous version, has, knows what I'm doing. They go up to me. Um, they confront me by grabbing my arm. I move my arm to try to get out of their, their, their grip. That's now a robbery in the third degree because um, it's use or threatened use of force in the commission of theft. The use of, of my arm to try to break the grip of the loss prevention officer in, in Oregon does, does uh, um, constitute that. That's now a Class C felony. Um, and if I have the right um, criminal history, it's a presumptive, um, presumptive prison sentence. If I have the right criminal history and I've been cut a break in, in the past, it could be a mandatory prison sentence. Now let's, let's, let's change the, the um, story a little bit. So let's say I go into the Target, I steal my candy bar, I, I, I go out, I'm confronted by the loss prevention officer, and I pretend like I have a gun in my pocket. And I, I pre pretend that to, to try to keep the loss prevention officer from stopping me getting away with the, um, with the $2.50 candy bar. Um, that's now a robbery in the second degree. Um, and in Oregon, that's a mandatory minimum um, prison sentence under ballot measure 11, um, mandatory minimum 70 months prison. Um, now let's, let's change it up a little bit. Let's say I steal my candy bar, I leave the, the loss prevention off, or the, the target, the loss prevention officers stop me, and now I have a, a knife in my pocket. I, I take the knife out, I don't, I don't stab them, I don't do anything with the knife other than, than hold it at my side so that they can see it, and I, I, I then walk away. Well, that's now a robbery in the first degree, um, which is a Class A felony in Oregon, mandatory minimum, um, 90 months prison. Um, so when we're talking about the ultimate statistics of violent crime, um, and, and all of these examples, by the way, are not sort of made up. It, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm making up the examples, but they're all very characteristic of what of what these supposedly violent felonies actually are. Um, and let's take a, a, a step back from that, and is how we prove that these things happened. So in, in the vast majority of the criminal cases that I've, I've ever handled, there's, there's, this, there's a, a pretty, it, 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 it's pretty certain what generally happened. These sort of general course of events are not controversial. We, we pretty much know what generally happened. But we often don't have very much proof about the gradations between all of those different things, between the use of force or not use of force. So the difference between a Class C felony that could be a presumptive prison sentence or a Class C misdemeanor, which is not. Um, we often don't have a lot of definite proof um, between whether somebody is purported to, whether somebody's acting like they're armed with a de dangerous or deadly weapon. Um, there's often some question of fact about whether that actually happened. Often it's not clear. Um, there's often some question of fact about whether somebody's actually threatening to use a deadly or dangerous weapon. Um, so you have 
a variety of flaws. I think there are sort of multiple flaws that all all are in in involved in a prosecutor's ability to stand up and say we only send violent people to prison and we only send them for long periods of time when they've done something that that our society has decided is expressly violent. Um, so I, 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 I think that it's difficult in that context um, to really ferret out. I mean, because uh, frankly, I have represented a number of people who have done very, very harmful, dangerous things. Um, and there are a number of people in our communities which ought to be in um, um, prison and, and, and because of a variety of things that have gone in, in, uh, on their life are just very dangerous people. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that overall, our, our crime justice statistics um, are not very well equipped of, uh, at doing a, a, a good job of discernment um, between those, those people and sort of desperate people who are engaging in very situational behaviors, yeah. which may or may not be that, all that dangerous. But getting back to um, Arizona, I mean, I, I believe that Part of the problem with some criminal justice reform is that it lets the politicians, the legislators, off the hook. Um, they pass uh, excessively vague uh, criminal laws that are open to a lot of prosecutorial uh, discretion. Uh, they then uh, impose lengthy sentences, uh, counting on them not being carried out. Uh, but when you sort it all out in Arizona, I mean, you I mean half of the roughly, uh, nearly half the people who get sentenced to prison um, get out on an annual basis, having served um, two years or less. Uh, the median uh, sentence is less than two years. So if you look at the people whom we are sending to prison for truly lengthy periods of time, um, I don't think you're going to find many of the um, dumb uh, candy bar stealers um, if they get caught up inappropriately in the system. They're not going to stay in the system uh, very long. Chances are they're going to be uh, diverted. So the, the question is, do you add more discretion into the system um, by letting uh, judges have greater leniency to consider these factors? Uh, uh, do you allow prison officials more discretion about when people should be let out earlier? Or do you um, try to rebalance the system by reducing prosecutorial discretion and ask legislators uh, to write clearer laws and only adopt sentences that we truly want to see imposed? Um, I believe that the superior policy option is the latter. It may be that politically uh, getting at it the back door uh, by increasing discretion uh, may be politically, it, it, it allows the politicians to continue uh, not doing the job that they ought to do uh, in deciding what behaviors in our society we're going to deem illegal and what punishments we're going to provide for them. Yeah, I think one thing that I took away from that candy bar analogy is just the, <clears throat> you know, on paper it's one thing, and, you know, in reality, like when you get the human 
the human stories behind it are so, are so different. And, um, you know, the variations of those are probably so hard to pin down on, on paper, given the context. And then when you, when you get into the, some of the, one of the questions we talked about earlier uh, a little bit, which was uh, the perception of poor minority communities of law enforcement and, and whether there might be seen as oppositional to them. On the other hand, Dad, you made a point that if, if the police just uh, retreat from that because they're scared of being seen as being unfair, maybe you're not enforcing you know, the same crime, uh, <clears throat> which might be more dangerous in those areas. Uh, but in that second candy bar example uh, of, of someone maybe reacting a little bit hostily to, being, to, the, to the presence of a police, you know, that, that has an impact too. Because this is an example where I think, where I, my views on this are um, developing and open to new information. But, but one of the areas if we're, that I would see um, it being beneficial for judges to have more discretion is at the front end, at the charging. So that guy who reacted instinctively to being grabbed, um, a uh, judge should have the ability to say, sorry, we're not going to say uh, that that was exhibiting a violent offense. So you can't charge him with this higher robbery. You can only charge him with one of these lower robberies. On the other hand, the guy that pretends that he has a gun uh, or... Uh, brandishes a knife uh, if he's not doing it strictly in order to say, hey, I got it, and now I'm getting rid of it. But if he's, if he's brandishing it to say, you shouldn't, you shouldn't mess with me, uh, well, then I, I think that those are probably ones that should be charged. At a but but you, think, you think that discretion should be on the judge? Cause, cause well, one right, the problem- right now, the one I um, agree with the criticism that the existing system provides excessive leverage uh, in the hands of the prosecutor. Because they can charge a higher Be- Because they can charge a higher, and, a, and so, you've got, so you've got mandatory sentencing, uh, which allows them to drive a uh, tougher plea bargain and makes people more likely to accept the plea bargain uh, than to fight what would be a fair charge uh, because they run the risk of uh, the higher uh, uh, minimum sentence uh, for the higher, higher crime. So I do believe that that is a problem, um, and we need to reduce that excessive leverage that the prosecutors have, short of allowing, my problem with giving judges and prison officials greater discretion is that it creates arbitrariness. Uh, that um, what someone in a similarly situated uh, circumstances will get in terms of a prison sentence or how long they have to stay in in prison will differ based upon the judge they get, based upon the relationship that they develop with uh, prison officials. So I'm in search of things um, uh, short of that uh, that nevertheless address what I believe are real problems. And I do believe that excessive leverage by prosecutors and overcharging by prosecutors is a problem. One potential solution for that uh, is rather than after the prosecution has presented its case in order to say we can have a motion to dismiss that charge uh, from lack of evidence or whatever the official uh, motion would be, to have it at the opening end, to, to to have a judge be able to say, sorry, but you can't bring those charges. Uh, and so that then would 
make it a more fair playing field, a more just playing field uh, in the plea bargain environment. Mm -hmm. John, you think a few, yeah, a few points. I mean, one, one point is that we don't know how many people um, that have been convicted of, of, of violent offenses are the ones that have committed what I think most people would would acknowledge are, are truly dangerous violent crimes and which people have had a candy bar and maybe tried to shrug off a loss prevention officer or just had a loss prevention officer think that he was trying to shrug him off or have a loss preventioner believe that he was purporting to have a, a, a gun. I mean, one of the one of the, the striking things that I've realized um, in, in, in doing my job is just how difficult it is um, to actually determine what happened in the past. Um, as I said, the overwhelming number of, of uh, cases that I've handled, it's been pretty clear what's generally happened. Um, but when you're trying to discern sort of these, these gradations, which become incredibly important, and the, the, the difference with mandatory minimums between a big mandatory minimum prison sentence and a misdemeanor, um, even with video evidence. I mean, I've, 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 I've sat with video, with surveillance videos for hours and hours and hours, going through frame by frame um, to try to determine things like whether somebody did en engage in a threatening action with a knife or something along those lines. But then how do you, what's the, what's the practical step in the, in the legal system to make it fairer and, and less, uh, you know, I guess overreactionary to classifying something as a violent offense? I mean, to not, not have these, these strict, harsh gradations on, on factors um, that are open to in, being interpreted a number of different ways, um, or at least to have to allow the system. I mean, the, the the problem with the mandatory minimum systems is that the vast majority of these cases never have the type of court hearing um, that that Dad was talking about, um, in which all of the evidence is laid out in in court and a neutral arbiter, either a, a judge or a, a a jury, ultimately decides what actually happens. That very rarely happens, and one of the reasons why it very rarely, rarely happens is because of the mandatory minimum sentences. So, so you see that one of the problems is the standardized system of X behavior gets X set years sentencing, Y behavior gets this much sentencing. So you think that should be uh, more open to like the specific case and the specific judge Absolutely. giving, giving yeah. sentencing. And the, there, there is something. So what, what, what Dad was talking about is uh, um, in Oregon is called the motion for judgment of acquittal stage, where during a, a, a trial, um, at the midpoint of the trial, when the uh, prosecution has laid out all of their, their cases, the defense attorney can stand up and, and argue for a judgment of acquittal. And what in Oregon, what the standard is, is even if you assume all of the facts that the state have laid out are, are true and you view them in the light most favorable to the state's case, um, they just don't add up to the specific crimes that, that the client's being charged with. And a, a judge at that point can, can decide to take, take those charges away from the jury and agree that, that even in the light most favorable to the state, they just don't add up to the uh, crime. Um, there, there is an, another um, context in which something like what, what, what Dad described could be a, um, a, 
accomplished, um, and it, it exists in the vast majority of states, including Arizona and, and Oregon. And it's called a pre preliminary hearing. Um, and at, at a preliminary hearing, what, what that's for is that when the uh, prosecution brings, brings felony charges, um, there is a probable cause hearing at which at that hearing, um, the prosecutor needs to bring in the actual witnesses. Um, the rules of evidence apply to uh, some degree. Um, and they need to lay out their case to a judge. Um, and only after they've laid out their case to the judge and had a defense had the opportunity to cross-examine the witnesses, present their own limited evidence, only at that point does the judge decide which specific criminal charges um, that, the, that the state's proven that there's enough evidence to go, um, to go forward on. Um, the, the, the problem is that because of uh, the prosecutor's discretion about whether to take uh, felony cases to a grand jury, which is a uh, hearing in, in, in uh, secret that the defense doesn't get to be a part of or cross-examine witnesses at, um, or have that preliminary hearing, what prosecutors do with, with these serious cases is take it to the grand jury and totally control that. And I've upset some of my friends. <laughs> the uh, prosecutorial cir cir circles by arguing in favor of abolishing the grand jury system. I, I, I don't think anyone should be charged with the crime without a neutral judge um, finding that there's probable cause to be believe in it. I would prefer, and it may require new mechanisms, I would prefer to increase the discretion of judges or the, or the effect of the judgment of judges at the beginning, in the charging phase, rather than in the sentencing phase. Because if you do it in the sentencing phase, then you're going to get inconsistencies um, based upon the luck of the draw uh, in terms of the uh, judge that you have. And uh, the creation of tighter sentencing ranging, ranges and less discretion for judges to go outside those ranges uh, was developed in part uh, because of um, those kind of inconsistencies. And I think that that leads to a more unjust system. Um, but I do recognize the, that, that there is excessive prosecutorial leverage in the plea bargaining, which is the way most of these things get uh, resolved, uh, stage um, from the existence of the minimum maximums, uh, and uh, the greater risk uh, that that puts defendants in, in asserting their rights. Um, and that's not right. Uh, that's not just. So I, I, I would like to come up with a solution short of increasing the discretion of judges in the sentencing uh, phase of it. And, and I am all for a system in which the the defense is given the the resources and the opportunity um, to to come into court and and have a, a a fair proceeding in which the actual evidence against uh, um, against defendants um, has a chance to be tested in in, in court. Um, and and I think a big problem of both the incarceration rates and sort of and the perception of the criminal justice system. Um, is just the fact that that so rarely happens. Um, and as far as the um, public defense uh, services uh, in, the, in, the, in the country, um, even if you, 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 you change the, um, the court structure to allow for that, 
Um, the defense just doesn't have the resources to do that in, in anywhere near a adequate way. And I, I think well, that's part and parcel of the, of the next uh, incremental steps to make things better. Well, I think if you give us a couple more years, a couple more <laughs> criminal justice podcast episodes, we'll figure it out. <laughs> uh, last question here for you, John, as a registered Democrat, do you have a favorite amongst the 25 candidates purported rumored candidates for president in 2020 who's your front runner well i remember a question that you asked me <laughs> when we did this podcast last was if there's any any politician which i'm inspired by or or, or sort of am, am hopeful about and the answer last time was no <laughs> um the answer today however has changed okay um cory booker who i've 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 started to read more and and and, and more about um, does to me seem like one of those inspiring candidates um, who 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 really is has his heart in the right place, for lack of a better term, um, and and it is somebody I could get behind and and uh, fully support. All right, I think Mayor Booker uh, might have a chance to win the presidency. I'm not sure that Senator Booker <laughs> does. There's a cool uh, Netflix. Uh, documentary about about one of Cory Booker's early mayoral campaigns called Street Fighter recommend it uh, it's a pretty interesting campaign documentary well by this time next year we might know if Cory Booker's got a chance uh, <laughs> well thanks everybody for listening and thanks John for coming back on the podcast thank you for having me uh, this is the political notebook you can find us on iTunes SoundCloud Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.